We're in the book of Revelation. I want to encourage you to turn there tonight, Revelation chapter 2. And uh, this evening, we're going to start in verse 18. Yeah, I'm going to actually read this whole letter uh, to this church, and then we'll pray. We ready? <laughs> okay, here we go. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow, maybe your translation says because you tolerate, that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time, what a merciful verse this is, and I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one according, I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine who have not known the depths of Satan as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my words until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, O oh Lord, we love you. We do say yes and amen to your holy word tonight. And, and we, we pray tonight that you would strengthen us where we need to be strengthened. We pray that you, Lord, would convict us in the areas where we need that convicting work of your spirit. Thank you that you give us time and space to turn our hearts to you. Thank you that you are a faithful God. You don't fail us. Lord, this process that we're in of sanctification, you lead it and you guide it and you're the one who empowers it. And tonight we bless your holy name. You are worthy to be praised in this place. We pray, Father, please, that our church would always bless your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you probably noticed as we read this letter that this is the longest letter so far to any church. And in fact, it is the longest of all of the seven letters. Interestingly enough, it is written to the smallest of all of the churches that Jesus uh, penned a letter to or dictated a letter to. And, you know, I think it's interesting because sometimes we would have that, sometimes I do think that we carry that attitude. Well, big churches are blessed churches and God is really present uh, where there's a lot going on and there's a multitude or there's a, a mega work of God. Sometimes we, because we use a worldly criteria in determining what is spiritually successful and what isn't, sometimes we think that the smaller churches might not be as significant. Well, I think one thing we for sure learn here tonight is that the small church in the eyes of Jesus is just as important as the big church. 
And this church needed a letter. It needed a word from the Lord, just like any other church did, whether it was Ephesus or whether it was Thyatira. Um, History tells us, and if you've been to Thyatira with us, you know this is true. Thyatira was in a rural area. It was a rural church, and so it's kind of off the beaten path. We'll talk about you know, some of those qualities of uh, that city in just a minute, but I'm thankful. I'm thankful that there were those who ventured out from the big city uh, who weren't looking just to leverage the opportunity of a large population Uh, Which, listen, you know, I say that, and I also want to say it is good to be strategic about church planting. It's good to plant in cities where there's a lot of influence so that as the seed of the gospel is planted there influencing people, it has the potential of influencing even beyond that city. And you know, Paul did this. Paul focused on significant cities like Ephesus and like Corinth and like Philippi. Um, But I say all that to say that the rural cities, the rural towns are important as well, and thank God for those who are called to them. I was having a conversation, Rachel and I were talking to a couple today, and, uh, you know, we're talking about the city in Brazil that we're ministering to, and, you know, it's a sizable city, Um, but, you know, that city from from a Christian perspective, you know, as you look at the churches... Uh, That city deals with some of the same issues that we deal with in our city with respect to churches. Sometimes there's territorialism. Sometimes there's, you know, a a focus on denominationalism. Church is not necessarily working with other churches. And, you know, as we were having this conversation, uh, there's an individual, a pastor we know, that faithfully ministers to churches in rural areas. I mean, this guy goes anywhere, and he is ministering to uh, pastors who are pastoring churches of 20 or 30 or maybe 40 people. And he has amazing influence. You know, uh, it, it is interesting that, that he has such a disposition and a heart uh, that ministers to so many people that he kind of has a unique opportunity to minister across denominational lines. But I think some of that exists because, you know, he's out in the rural areas and he's not dealing with some of the big city church issues that seem to be so prevalent. And so I hope that made sense to you tonight. Jesus cares about the small churches and we should care about them too. Just because a church is big doesn't mean that that uh, is just a church that God is moving at. God moves through all of his, all of his people. I mentioned this to you before. There's one church in Las Vegas. It is the church of the living God. Amen. All right. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right. So Thyatira is identified here. The word Thyatira uh, is a compound word. It means continual sacrifice or continual feast. Um, and it, you know, that name is significant for this city because that's what was happening. We'll talk uh, in just a minute about the guilds and uh, the unions that were prevalent in this particular city and, and all of the idolatrous sacrifice that was continually happening. It was as if there was a just a continual smoke of sacrifice rising from the city of Thyatira. It was not a beautiful city, and it is not a beautiful city today. Uh, Neither is it an intellectual capital like Pergamos or Ephesus was. And so from a sophisticated standpoint, it really didn't have a lot to offer. From a religious standpoint, uh, Apollo uh, was the god that was worshipped in the city of Thyatira. In fact, 
this city was known worldwide for the worship of this particular god. Apollo in the Greek pantheon is the sun god. He is, uh, according to that myth, he is or was the son of Zeus. That's important. Because in a minute, Jesus is going to identify himself as the son of God, the true son of the true God. Um, It was a center for guilds. So like I said, it was a a union city, blue collar people. It was also a military city. Um, If you're going to think of, you know, maybe a a city that was similar in our country to Thyatira, it might be uh, Detroit back in the 70s or 80s, or maybe like Pittsburgh today. Uh, It was one of the guilds that was very prevalent in Thyatira was the textile guild. And uh, we have been introduced, you know, as you read the book of Acts, you're introduced to a lady named Lydia. Paul met Lydia uh, when he was venturing into Philippi, Paul and Silas to plant the church. There was no synagogue there. So they went down by the river where the, the women were gathering to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Paul ran into uh, Lydia, and she gave her life to the Lord. She was a very wealthy lady, and she uh, was a seller of purple. This was one of the main commodities that was sold in Thyatira. Lydia, in fact, became a very significant leader in the early church. Like I said last week, and I think this is really important just with respect to our context, uh, the unions in that day, the guilds in those days, what they did when they gathered together for their meetings is they would basically sacrifice, make sacrifices to partic- particular gods and goddesses. Um, these would be patron gods that they believed as they made their sacrifices to these gods and appeased these gods. The, the result would be that they would be They would have lucrative business. The gods would be favorable, that whatever particular guild that they were in would be blessed in a sense. And so if you were going to a guild meeting, you would bring your sacrifice. Uh, There would be meat and wine that was poured on the sacrifice. This is why when Jesus is talking about eating things that have been sacrificed to idols, this was the issue. It wasn't as if these people were just in the marketplace and they were going to the butcher and they... Uh, you know, erroneously bought a ribeye that had been sacrificed or, you know, from an animal that had been sacrificed to a false god or goddess. We're not talking about that. Paul deals with that when he writes his letter to the church at Corinth. We're talking about being in a place where this meat, you're in the process of being part of the worship of a false god or goddess, and this meat is being sacrificed in a sense and then eaten um, in this gathering that you're in. This is how it would roll out. You would, you would get there. There would be that uh, sacrificial meat and wine poured out as an offering followed up with sexual debauchery. This was part of their worship to these gods and goddesses. And there was this pressure, right? There was this pressure to really maintain your opportunities, to keep your position in the business, to make sure you have the upward mobility. Uh, You had to be engaging in these things. And so these Christians were in a really difficult place because, you know, if they didn't engage in these things, they would be socially persecuted. They would be economically persecuted. And as we saw uh, with Antipas last week, Uh, they would possibly be physically persecuted as well. Um, So I I say all that, and I 
I think you might be thinking, well, we don't really do that today. I mean, we don't, we don't have unions that are sacrificing to false gods and goddesses. And the truth is, yes, we do. Yes, we do. And there is that that happens today. And there is a lot of pressure on Christians to conform themselves to what the world believes to be solid business practices to gain the favor of individuals that you might be courting. Uh, we were... We were on our way to California, and uh, we were going to a, a memorial service, and behind us, you know, I always seem to pick the wrong seat, but behind us, there were three, uh, there were three guys who were really loud, um, who clearly had been just like tilting the bottle back. I mean, one dude was, he sounded to me like he was slobbering drunk, but, but uh, suffice it to say, they owned an app company. Uh, graduates from a well-known college, they owned an app company, and they had in their business portfolio uh, Forbes 50 businesses. I mean, we're talking about high-level businesses. And it was interesting to listen to them talk about their technique, right? I mean, their technique was uh, establishing these connections, networking, hosting these parties, you know, where there's plenty of alcohol that's flowing. And in the midst of the party, in the midst of the revelry, um, they have these meetings, obviously, in Vegas for a reason, but in the midst of the revelry, that's when the connections happen. You know, that's when the money starts to flow. This was what they were saying. And you know, I mean, I mean if you're a Christian and you're in the midst of that, you know you feel the pressure in that moment, and you have a decision to make. Where is the threshold? Where is the boundary where you go beyond what God has prescribed and you actually begin to compromise in your faith. Some of you deal with that pressure on a daily, weekly basis. And I think Thyatira, uh, what was happening in this church, gives us a good guideline on how to navigate that because sometimes we do find ourselves rationalizing sin, right? So he gives the identification of the city. Now um, he gives the personal revelation. These things says the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Uh, so remember, I've mentioned this a multiple number of times, but he pulls a piece of the revelation that was given uh, to John that John saw and he reminds them, hey, don't forget, I'm the son of God. I'm the son of God. Apollo may be worshiped, there in that city, he may be perceived as the son of Zeus in the pantheon of Greek gods, but I am the true son of the true God, the only begotten of the Father. This is a statement of deity, right? I mean, when we talk about the son of man, I mean, there are implications to that name of Jesus. And I don't want to just boil it down to his humanity, but really, when we talk about the son of man, we're considering the humanity of Jesus. When we talk about him as the son of God, we are considering his deity, that Jesus is more than just one of the great religious figures to follow, um, that Jesus is more than just an individual who gave us a good lifestyle to emulate, uh, that Jesus is more than one of the great prophets of the Jewish religion. No, he's more than that. And you can't just say he's only one of those things because he himself said that he was God. He himself made that declaration. And the religious leaders in Jesus's day understood what he meant when he said that he was the I am. Because they themselves, the Bible says, took up stones to execute him, to, to uh, put him in a place of capital punishment because he had made himself equal with God. So listen, tonight I just do want to remind you, maybe this is new news for you. Jesus is more than just a man. 
He is the Son of God. He's God incarnate, and he is worthy of your worship. He has eyes like a flame of fire. Uh, what a beautiful expression, of course. We talked about how uh, the eyes of Christ, they do burn like flames of fire, filled with love for you and for me. But remember, um, I do believe here, with respect to what he's going to challenge this church with, is that he is saying, listen, I see everything. I, I see everything. There's nothing in your life that you think is hidden that I don't see. In other words, I see every single thing, as much as you may try to hide it, as, as, even if it's behind closed doors. Listen, even as far as into your own heart or into your own mind, Jesus sees all things. He has eyes that burn like flames of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Brass in scripture always represents judgment. And when it's connected with the word fine, we're talking about refined to the place of perfection. He is the perfect judge. And it is interesting, I do think, that you know, this element or aspect of his attributes is brought to bear in the church because judgment begins in the house of the Lord. You know, sometimes as Christians, we spend a lot of time judging the unbelieving world out there. And, you know, we, we've sometimes find ourselves pointing the proverbial finger at all of those unbelievers and all of those, uh, all those Christians and, or all those non-Christians and all those things that they're doing. And sometimes we can do that while we ourselves have tolerated compromise in our own lives. The Bible says judgment starts first with us. To whom much is given, much is required. The revelation that God has given to us, one day we all will be responsible for. God help us to not point the finger at others while we accommodate compromise in our own life. He gives a commendation here in verse 19. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So, I mean, this church has a lot of great stuff going on. I mean, at this point, this is a, a church that's worthy of emulating. You know, they were active. They were energized. They were engaged. Their lives had been transformed. It was manifested in their behavior. They weren't just a church that talked about it. They were a church that did it. He said, I know your works. You're an active, engaged church. In addition to that, he identifies love as one of the main qualities that this church demonstrated. And I think how pleasing to Jesus is that? You know, uh, if he were to write to us a letter and list out all the things that are prevalent in a positive sense here at Calvary Chapel, Las Vegas, would love, agape love, the self-giving love of God sit at the top? You know, Jesus said that this would be the defining mark of a true follower, the one who really does sincerely and genuinely uh, and truly know him, their lives will be marked by love. First, the love that's demonstrated between brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. So uh, this was an engaged church. It was a loving church. This was a church that served. These people clearly were kingdom-minded. You know, it wasn't as if they uh, had come down to the altar in response to the message of the gospel and then just continued to, to live their life after their own desires and purposes. No, they really did have a desire to serve the Lord, sincerely being able to be called servants of God. Um, they were people who walked by faith, and so they believed God for great things. Hey, do you believe God for great things? Do you, do you, do you? Anybody? Anybody have an experience of God this week where he's just doing great stuff in your life? 
where you believe in God for the impossible, right? He's speaking to you and, and he's saying, hey, take this step of faith and, and you might be battling a little bit of fear, but you take it and God works the miracle. Look, you can trust in the Lord. You can trust in God. I don't know tonight what kind of step of faith God is calling you to make, but if you're a child of God, I guarantee you, if you're really walking with him, there is a step. There's a step beyond yourself. There's a step beyond your abilities. There's a step beyond your resources that God is calling you to take. If the last real step of faith you took was five or 10 years ago, uh, hello, you're backsliding. You're backsliding because, you know, that means that you've not grown in your faith for five or 10 years. God is always provoking us to a greater faith. God is regularly challenging us to remember what it was that he just did in our lives and carry that into today's current difficulty or tragedy or uh, walking on water opportunity. I pray tonight that there's something that's set in front of you that you're thinking, God, I can't do this. God, I can't do this, but you can, you can do this. All things are possible with the mighty God that we serve. He's the one who split the sea. He's the one who poured the manna from heaven. He's the one who caused the bitter waters to be sweet. He's the one who caused their sandals not to wear out for 40 years, walking in circles in the desert. He's the one that heaped up the waters of the Jordan. He's the one that caused the walls of Jericho to fall down. He is the one who caused the sun to stand still so Joshua could win the victory. I mean, look. He says, works, love, service, faith, and patience. Your patience. Your, the Greek word here is hupamone. Isn't that just a fun word to say? Say it with me tonight. Ready? One, two, three. Hupamone. It sounds like an Italian ice cream, you know, uh, but it doesn't taste that good. I'll tell you right now. I'm very, very few people are like, man, I love patience. I love when God puts me in an opportunity where I've got to demonstrate patience. God, bring Bring the difficulty in my life so I can just walk in patience because I love it. It's like Italian ice cream. God, give me, give me the opportunity. No one is saying that. Normally, people are like, please, Lord, really? Really? Do I have to walk through another situation where I have to be patient again? And Jesus says of this church, man, you know, you're, you're patient. You endure. There's a lot of hupamone in your life, and it's a good thing. Patience demonstrates that we really do trust God. That's what it demonstrates. You know, when our clock is ticking and time feels like it's running out and, you know, the, the provision isn't really happening when we want it to, it's in those moments that we really do what's tested in those moments, whether or not we believe faith, whether or not we believe God really is in control, you know, whether or not God really is providentially working in our lives. God this doesn't feel good. I, it's just like it always is. You're rarely early, but you're never late. It's always in the 11th hour, it feels like. But you know, God always comes through, right? And he says, and, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. Now, there's two ways to take this. One way is that he is saying, hey, the, the, in the list, the last section of the list is more prevalent than the first section. That's one way. Or he is saying, 
from a chronological perspective, with respect to all these things, you've been growing. You've been growing. As we look at the course of time, it's not that you've been sliding backwards, it's, it's that you've been advancing. And I would say most commentators view it like that, which is important to consider because it really does give the impression that this church was on the move, right? This church was a flourishing church. Uh, this church was a growing church. This church was a vibrant church. This church was not a dead church, uh, like we're going to see in Sardis uh, in not too long. This church didn't have a name that it was alive, but it was dead. No, there, was, there were good things happening in this church. They were flourishing, but they were also lacking. In their flourishing, they were also tolerant. You know, it's interesting. It's a little different than Ephesus. Warren Wiersbe said this as he compared Ephesus to Thyatira. He said, the Ephesian church was weakening in its love, yet faithful to judge false teachers, while the people in the assembly of, of Thyatira were growing in their love, but too tolerant of false doctrine. It is interesting how this church, as you compare the two, seems so different than the church uh, at Ephesus, that they were a church growing in love, but they had become, they had become, and I'm not saying that, that this is the way that it worked there, but they'd become, it seems like they'd come to a place where they were so loving that they began to tolerate things that they shouldn't have tolerated, maybe even in the name of love. Hey, well, listen, you know, we're a loving church. We're a loving church. We love everybody. And, you know, because we love everybody, we just kind of, it's kind of hands off. You know, we're not going to address those issues and we're not going to deal with that stuff because, you know, I mean, we're all grace and, you know, a little light on the truth. Well, Jesus has a problem with this. He says in verse 20, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. With Ephesus, it was, I have this against you. With this church, it is, I have a few things against you. What were those few things? Well, the Bible says, because you allow. You know, you may want to uh, circle that or highlight that in your Bible tonight. Maybe like I, when I was reading it initially, uh, maybe your translation says, because you tolerate, right? So we're not talking about something that just happened. Uh, this was not, you know, this was not something that... Uh, was unknown to them. Somebody was asleep at the wheel. The church was asleep at the wheel. These were decisions that were made. There was a, there was, um, a concerted effort to not address issues that maybe at some point in time they knew they should have addressed. This is the problem that I have. He doesn't talk just directly about those individuals who were perpetrating these things. He says to the church collectively and to the leader specifically, I have this against you. You have allowed. There's some, yeah, there's, there are people we're going to deal with in a minute, but the truth is this. You have been asleep at the wheel. You've accommodated something that you shouldn't have accommodated. They for sure will be held responsible for their part, but you also I'm holding responsible for your part. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allowed that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality, to eat things sacrificed to idols. So the issue for this church was tolerance, right? Tolerance maybe in the name of love. Tolerance maybe in the name of grace. Let me tell you something. Tolerance is not good when the issue is evil or the issue is wickedness or the issue is sin 
or the issue is falsehood. There was a literal woman in this church that claimed to speak on behalf of God. She called herself a prophetess. You know, this wasn't somebody who was on the outside influencing this church. You know, it's not that this church had internet access. It's not that there were all of these websites, you know, that people were perusing and, you know, watching uh, these teachers on. No, this was happening in the church, behind the doors. Of course, the church at this point in time met in houses. And Jesus likens this woman. Now, probably her name wasn't Jezebel, but he identifies her with Jezebel from the Old Testament. Do you remember who Jezebel was? Jezebel was the wife of Ahab, who was king of uh, Israel. That's the northern part of the kingdom of Israel. At this point in time, Israel was divided into, you had 10 tribes in the north, that was called Israel, the northern kingdom. And you had two tribes in the south, that was called Judah. She was the daughter of Eth Baal, and she was the one who introduced the worship of Baal into the northern kingdom. She heavily influenced her husband, who was the king, and she led him in this to commit more sins. I'm not saying that he wasn't responsible, because at the end of the day, he was responsible, but she was the one who was doing the influencing. She was the one who had introduced the worship of this false god who stood against everything that God was for. And ultimately, because they were the leaders of the nation, that portion of the nation, the whole northern kingdom got sucked into this. You know, Ahab is known historically as the king who committed more sins than all of the preceding kings before him combined together. And if you're not familiar with the story, all of this comes to a climax at Mount Carmel. Carmel, sorry, I'm, I have a sweet tooth and I just <laughs> want some ice cream with some caramel on top of it. But at Mount Carmel, you know, uh, this was what happened. Elijah the prophet, he, he called Jezebel out. She, he called her, her prophets and prophetesses out and he had a showdown at the OK Corral. It was a straight up, straight up octagon, mano a mano, you know, uh, the prophet of God against the prophet of the false gods. And so you remember the story, they built an altar, the prophets and prophetesses of the false gods got to go first. There were many of them. Uh, and the, the deal was this, hey, you call on your gods, I'll call on my God. The God that answers with fire from heaven is the true God. And so to make a long story short, you know, they... They called out to their gods and goddesses. No one was answering. Uh, Elijah got a little sarcastic and said, maybe your gods and goddesses are sitting on the toilet in, the, in, the, in one of the bathrooms. I mean, that really, you know, it's not in your Bible, but that was kind of the implication that was given, you know, in the colloquial, colloquialism of the time. And uh, so they started dancing. They cut themselves with lances. Nothing happened. It was Elijah's turn. He called out just simply in prayer to God, and God answered with fire from heaven, consumed the sacrifice on the altar, consumed all of the water that was around the altar. And then after God showed himself clearly to the people, Elijah had all the prophets and prophetesses of Baal and Ashtoreth uh, executed, cut their heads right off. Can you imagine if that happened in church today? That would just be, be crazy to watch that video. I'll tell you that right now. But this was what had happened. This woman, she was, the Bible says, calling herself a prophetess, 
And she was teaching and seducing the servants of God to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So she was saying something in a sense, hey, it's okay with God. God understands your situation. You know, it's hard. It's difficult. You know, you're part of these guilds, and this is just simply what's required. So it's okay, right? This is, the, this is her speaking on behalf of God. God says to you, I'm a prophet, a prophetess of God. And God is saying to you, it's okay, he understands, you can do these things, and it's, it's not a big deal to him. And the problem here was that the church had not stood up against this. The church had not drawn a line in the sand. She called herself a prophetess. She was not a prophetess. Obviously, Jesus makes that clear. And the leadership of the church should have called her out for that. She had a platform. The Bible says here that she had the platform of teaching. She'd have, she should have never had the platform of teaching. She was communicating things that were contrary to the word of God. I want to remind you tonight, and I say this a lot, so just you know, listen to it again. It is your responsibility to make sure that you are testing all things to God's word. It is your responsibility. Whoever is teaching who, whatever worship song we're singing, right? Because you, when you sing a worship song, you want to make sure that the doctrine that you're singing is solid based on the word of God. It is your responsibility. You may have worship leaders leading you. You may have pastors teaching you, but at the end of the day, you need to be like the church, the believers in Berea, who, what did they do when Paul taught the word, they went and they searched the scriptures themselves to make sure that what he said was true. And that's missing in the church today. Why? Because so many people are just consumers. We're just feeding. And you know, if somebody's got a, uh, you know, a, a well-known ministry and they've got a big following on social media and these particular pastors are saying that they're the best things in sliced bread, well, they must be good. And so I'll watch their videos. Well, listen, okay, watch their video, but watch it with your Bible open. And the second you hear something that's contrary to the word of God, that's in conflict with the word of God, I'm not saying that they're a false prophet if they get something wrong. But if you see a, a string, a thread of falsehood, you should not be wasting your time listening to that individual because you're not feeding on God's truth. You're feeding on some person's opinion. And I, I do think that we need, to, we need to grow up in the church with respect to this. Because right now, we just live in an era where we're so tempted to just evaluate whether something is from God or not based on worldly criteria, and that's just not the way that it works. It is a good reminder here that leadership is responsible. She called herself a prophetess. She was not. She should have been called out on that. She had a platform to teach. She was not teaching God's word. It should have been shut down. She t seduced God's servants. She had influence. She had influence. Like this woman circulated. She circulated in the church. She caused the people of God to stumble. And the leadership of the church should, should have said in a loving way, hey, listen, stop. You need to stop. This, we're not going to tolerate this. We love you, all right? And we do believe God loves you, but you can't continue uh, walking down this road because we're just not going to allow it. Give her time to respond, which is exactly what Jesus does. Verse 21, and I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. How, how good is he? I mean, how good is he, right? I, I mean, he even in this, even in this, his love is demonstrated in giving space 
for her to respond to the conviction of the Spirit and turn from her sinful ways. You know, the Bible says that it is, it is the kindness of the Lord that draws us to repentance. It's the kindness of the Lord that draws us to repentance. When Paul said that in the book of Romans, what he's saying is God will give us, he's long-suffering with us. He gives us space. Could you imagine if God just immediately judged us when we sinned? Can you imagine? Some of you wouldn't have even made it here tonight right? I mean, some of you would have been judged while you were driving in your car, having a conversation that was not pleasing to God with your spouse or whatever it was. He gives us space. He gives us time because his heart, his heart is for us to, of our own volition, turn ourselves to him when we're walking in sin. That's what the Lord desires. You know, I, we, we, we do have this same attitude with our kids. It is better for you to come to us and tell us yourself when you're doing something wrong than for us to hear about it through the grapevine. And by the way, parents always hear, right? Can I get an amen from the parents here today? Especially when you're the pastor of the church. My poor kids. Especially when you're the pastor of the church and you know, you go to school at the uh, school where your pastor, where your dad's the pastor of the church. I mean, I would find out about stuff with my kids. Like, I mean, it always blew their mind. They're like, how did you find out about that? And it's like, well, you know, God's got a way of letting me know. <laughs> it's better. It's always better if you just come and just say it, right? Just say it. When you own it, when you're vulnerable, when you let me know, when you are proactive, it is always going to be grace and help and support. And I think that that's the heart of God, right? We, we don't want to be hiding our sin and putting God, it's, it's almost like testing him, right? Putting God in a place where because he loves us with such a jealous love. He has a jealous love for you. You know, when God does bring correction, it's not because he's out to get you. It's not because he wants to hurt you, but it's because he loves you. And listen, when we're walking in sin, uh, we are in conflict with the, with the main purpose of our life, which is to glorify God and to walk in his love. In addition to that, he, uh, he will chasten us because sin is never good for us. Like what parent has a child who's playing in the street who is like, well, you know, you'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. You'll learn the hard way, right? Yeah, after they get run over. Like, that's not, that's not loving at all. But because God loves us, you know, he'll give us time. He'll, maybe there's someone here tonight, you know, and, and God has been giving you space. God has been giving you time. He's been knocking on the door of your heart. Don't don't put God in a place where he has to do more than that. Don't test the Lord. Don't push God to a place where, where he, like with this woman, has to do something extreme to get your attention because you know what? He loves you so much, he will do that. And this is what he says. I mean, these are strong words. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, verse 22, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Listen, this is what I'm gonna do. This bed of sexual immorality that she's been enjoying, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to make it a sick bed. Probably what he's saying here is that this woman is going to be aff afflicted with physical sickness. Probably. You know, the very thing that she was looking at as a source for her pleasure would ultimately be a source of pain for her. 
I was thinking about this, and I was reminded about the children of Israel. You, you remember the story. They had just been victoriously delivered from uh, Egypt, and God had blessed them with manna, right, from heaven, and they were like, man, this is just bland. It's just bland. It doesn't taste good, and we had it so much better when we were in Egypt, you know, where we had leeks and onions and garlic, and they were, they were craving flesh, and so what did God do? God caused, caused all of these quail to fly into the midst of uh, the assembly there that was on the way to Sinai, and they ate. They ate, the Bible says, a very strong word here, they ate until they were stuffed, and then they ate more, to the point where they were literally physically sick. And in the midst of that, craving for the things of this world, a plague came upon them. God smote them with the plague. The Bible says, while the meat was still being chewed in their teeth. Oh my gosh. And he's like, hey, is this what you want? Is this what you want? Because if this is what you want, I'll let this happen. I'm not saying that God was the one that was enticing them to sin, but, but God stepped back and he said, have it your way. Hey, never be in a place where you are so determined to sin that God steps back and says, if this is what you want, I'm going to let you have it because what you have been enjoying for pleasure will ultimately bring you to a place of pain. And God loved these people in their waywardness, right? In their lostness, even when they were affecting the church so negatively, God loved them enough to allow this in their life to draw them back. This was intended to be a sign to the rest of the churches. I will kill, verse 23, I will kill our children with death and all the churches, check this out, collectively. We're not talking just about Thyatira or Sardis or Ephesus or Smyrna or um, Laodicea. We're talking about the church, the, the whole church across the known world at the time. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works." So, you know, he says, very strong words, I will kill her children with death. Probably those who were adherents, those who were proponents, uh, were going to go through strong tribulation, even maybe to the point where they were chastened unto physical death. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, verse 5, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And the message to the rest of the church was this. It was a, a holy fear, a holy fear. No, he really does know. No, he really does see. And, you know, the rest of the church was to look at how Jesus dealt with this issue of unrepentant sin and Thyatira, and it was intended to whip them into shape. You know, that they would come to a place where they once again would have the fear of God in their own hearts and lives, that they wouldn't be taking the grace of God as a license to sin, that they wouldn't be walking in a sense of tolerance under the banner of the love of God, that they, they wouldn't be misusing the, the forgiveness of the cross to accommodate compromise in their life. And, you know, this is what happens to the church when we get to that lukewarm place in our lives. We forget that God sees every single thing. This is what he says here. I am the one who searches the hearts and the minds, and I will give to you, to each one of you. We're not talking just about a collective 
understanding that Christ has from an omniscient perspective of what's happening in the church. He is talking about every single believer. I know what's going on in the deep recesses. I know what's going on in the dark places. I know what's being thought of. I know what sacrifices are being offered up in the heart. I'm the one who searches and tests the heart. I know these things and I will give to each according to their works. The Bible says, be not deceived. Are you with me? Okay. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If he sows to the flesh, he will of the flesh reap destruction. If he sows to the spirit, he will of the spirit reap everlasting life. So Paul says, hey, don't, don't come to the wrong conclusion. God's not mocked. You think you're getting away with it. You think you can play games with God. You think that you can just excuse these things and justify them. And I know this, this might sound harsh to some of you today, but, but this is the problem. These warnings aren't given in the church anymore. They're just not given in the church anymore. Why? Because we want to fill the auditorium. You know, we, we, want to, we want to be relevant. You know, we want to be relevant to people. And so we're going to soft pedal the message and we're not going to say things that might hurt somebody's feelings, you know, or might cause them not to want to come back. So we'll soften things up a little bit so we can get as many people to come as we can. And so what? So we're going to have a a church full of people who don't understand the full truth of God's word? Like, is, is, that, is that the deal? Like, are we gonna create this philosophy of ministry that puts us, puts us in a position where we have bound ourselves to not tell the truth because of what might happen, how people might respond? I, I would say to you today, this is probably one of the biggest dangers that we face in our Christian culture in America. Today, the church in America is maybe more like Thyatira than any of the other churches, that we have allowed compromise. This, is, this church historically has been called the corrupt church. I mean, there were areas where it was advancing, but there were areas of compromise under the banner of grace or love. And it's just a good reminder tonight that he sees all things, and because we love him, listen, we want to offer an offering to him in our thinking and in our doing that is pleasing and right and holy and just and praiseworthy, to be in a place where we know when he comes again, we'll hear those words, not well done, good and perfect servant, but well done, good and faithful. Are you with me tonight? He, he goes on to say in verse 24, now, to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I'll put no other burden. I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. So this is the motivation piece. And I just want you to notice that he uses his coming as a motivation for this church. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. So the motivation is this. Hey, listen, I'm going to put on you no other burden. Deal with this issue. Stop being tolerant with things that are wicked and evil. Draw the line in the sand. And, and make sure that these things in the church are addressed. Hold fast to your confession of faith and, 
and do so until I come. I want to remind you tonight that heaven is not just a destination for us. Heaven is a motivation. The second coming of Christ or the rapture of the church is not just for us leading to our ultimate destination. It's a motivation. In other words, listen, we know he's coming back. And because we know he's coming back, as we have this anticipation within our lives, it purifies our hearts. It purifies our behavior because the truth is this. He could come back at any moment. Look, if he came back right now, kudos for you for being at church, studying the word of God and worshiping, right? And not engaged in some thing that would be displeasing to him because you know his coming is going to be like a thief in the night. And we want to be in a place of preparation that he can find us so doing. So the motivation is his coming. The reward is that we will be given the opportunity. This is so huge, and I'm not going to go into it in detail tonight, but we will have the opportunity to rule over the nations. Doesn't that blow your mind? You're like, really, Pastor? I thought heaven was just clouds and harps and clouds and harps and songs and kind of boring. No. Like, you know, when he, when, he, when he comes the second time, we will come with him. We will come in the clouds with him, and he will usher in the golden era, the messianic era, and you will be his administrators for a thousand years. You've been faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be his administrators, and you with him will rule with a rod of iron. You will rule, Psalm 2, verse 8 to 9, you will rule over the nations. You're like, man, pastor, I can't find my way out of a paper bag, okay? I can't administrate my own life. I can't administrate my own life. How am I going to do that then? Well, guess what? You'll be totally renewed. You'll have a, a brand new body. You'll have a renewed mind. You won't be dealing with the old nature, that fleshly, sinful, corrupt nature, that will be gone, and Jesus will be the potentate that you follow. He, like I said this morning, he is the president, he is the prime minister that your heart is always long for. You will not find a perfect president or prime minister on the face of planet Earth until Jesus Christ comes again, and he will be the potentate who is the king of kings and is the Lord of lords. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for the message that you gave to the church at Thyatira. And uh, Lord, we don't want to soften the blow tonight. We don't want to soft pedal the message so that our hearts are preserved from something that's uncomfortable. God, we're thankful for how this church advanced and how they were filled with love for you and they served you and they had patience. But we also learned tonight Lord, that, that we're responsible for what we tolerate and that we need to be faithful with respect to your word. God, we need to be faithful to evaluate those things that we hear with the Holy Scriptures. God, we need to be faithful with those who have influence within your church and are given platforms to teach I pray tonight that we would not be weak in these areas, God, that we would not be immature in these areas, that we would not be tossed to and fro with every wind and wave of doctrine. God, please grow us up and mature us. Tonight as we're in this moment of prayer, uh, look, we, we can't 
close tonight off without giving an opportunity for those among us who need to turn their hearts to the Lord. Maybe tonight, you know, there there's, are things in your life that are displeasing to God. You've been living in sin. You've been accommodating compromise, a lifestyle. Maybe for you, it's just been unbelief. You're not a Christian. And you've been living in unbelief and doubt. You've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. And yet he's been speaking to you. And the truth is this, he loves you. Maybe there's been some adversity in your life. You know, I'm not saying that this is always the case, but, but you know, he'll allow adversity to bring us to a spiritual awakening to enable us to recognize how deep our need for him truly is. Uh, tonight, here you are. You, you're seeking. You, you wouldn't be here if you weren't seeking or maybe you're listening online and he's been patiently working with you as you've been on this journey. But tonight, you need to make a decision. You need to choose. No one can choose for you. Being present is good, but it's not enough. Salvation, the church is not the way of salvation. It's not the means of salvation. Jesus is. And he's calling you to himself tonight. Tonight, if you need to make that decision personally, you need to trust in Christ, to believe in him as the savior of your soul, the one who is able to forgive your sins because he paid the sacrifice. God's not looking for you to be more moral. God is looking for you to trust in his son. That is the simple and beautiful message of the gospel. God did the work for you. You just need to come by faith. And so tonight, if this is you, you need to trust in Christ. I want to pray for you this evening. Our eyes are closed. Our heads are bowed. But would you raise your hand tonight? Would you acknowledge that you need to take this step of faith and, and you want to tonight? You want to be a follower of Christ? You need him in your life? Stretch your hand up high. Let me see who you are. Awesome. Thank you. Anybody else? Tonight, maybe you're a Christian, and, and honestly, tonight, there are areas of compromise in your life, and, you know, it's, maybe you've, you've felt like it's something you've been getting away with, and I just want to tell you tonight, He loves you. He loves you. He's calling you right now to lay that thing down, to lay that sin down and, and to walk with him. He's good enough in our lives to give us time and space to repent, but don't take advantage of that. Don't use that. Don't use that the wrong way. See that for what it is. It's his love giving you time to, to own it, to come to him of your own volition before things have to get more difficult. And I'll tell you right now, he loves you enough to allow things to get more difficult. He's a jealous love for you. He doesn't want just a part of you. He wants all of you. So tonight, Christian, maybe, maybe there's something to lay down, something to walk away from, something to confess and to own. 
something to leave tonight at the altar and to never look back to tonight. If this is you, I want to pray for you as well. Would you raise your hand tonight? Just stretch it up high. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I see your hand too. It's good. He loves you. Thank you. There's no judgment here. He's spoken to you tonight and you're making the right decision. Anybody else? Father, thank you tonight for speaking to us and thank you for the strong words of truth that we find in this letter. And we pray, God, that these lives tonight, these lives would be blessed, God, beyond measure, beyond expectation. Tonight, right where you're sitting, I want to lead you in a prayer. We're going to do a couple things tonight, but... If you raise your hand tonight, I want to lead you in prayer and just want to lead you in a moment of repentance to God. Maybe you're trusting in Christ. This is the very first time you've ever prayed to God. You're receiving Jesus for the first time. Thank God for his work in your life tonight. Maybe tonight as a Christian, you're, you're laying a thing down, whatever it might be. I want you to pray as well. So right where you're sitting, follow me in this prayer. You can pray this out loud. Oh God, tonight, I know you have spoken to me, and tonight I'm choosing to respond to your love. I'm owning my sin and confessing it to you, and tonight I believe in Jesus, your Son that he died for me and that he rose again. And tonight I choose to follow him. Cleanse me from my sin and fill me with your spirit and place your joy in my heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen.